This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is the first one of the new year, 2022. Well, actually, I've released one other one a couple weeks ago when I interviewed author, poet, storyteller, Mark Nepo, which was really exciting for me. I was a little bit nervous. I don't know if you could tell. I was trying to get my zen on and breathe and not come across nervous, but I was a little bit nervous talking to Mark because that's, he's kind of a big get for me. Anyway, I've got a couple of things to talk about with this one being the first official podcast where I'm not interviewing a big name and have to go through my introductions and some announcements and different things like that. So a couple of things I wanted to talk about as we get started on this new year. First, one of my goals for this year, one of my intentions for this new year is I want to get back to doing more podcast episodes. Last year, and even in 2020, I knew there was going to be some busy things. Last year at this time, I knew I was going to be opening another location in the downtown Salt Lake area. And so I knew I wouldn't have as much time. I would just be taking on a little bit more than I had planned previously. And I knew I wouldn't have as much time. So I gave myself permission to not record weekly episodes and to be able to do it on a schedule that felt good to me and fit with my schedule. It was a little less often than I normally had done and maybe a little bit less often than I wanted to do. And so my intention for this year is to record podcast episodes a little bit more often, release them more often. So there's that. The other thing I want to do, you know, I I used to be part of a book club years ago. I mean, it's probably been about four years since I was part of a book club. I like reading books and I even more so love talking about books that I'm reading. And I've missed that. Actually, probably, not probably, actually, I really, me as a person, my personality didn't really ever fit in well with the previous book club I was part of. And so I always felt like I was trying to filter or not say too much just so, you know, I I already knew a lot of what I said or what I thought or what I believed didn't maybe mesh with a lot of the ladies in my book club. Not just that I thought that, I was told that on numerous occasions. And so while I wanted to talk about the books that I was reading and that we were reading as a book club, and while I wanted to have conversations and be able to like maybe not have to filter myself so much in what I was learning or feeling or experiencing as I read books, I found that I did do that. And so one of the things that I want to do this year is I want to have a book a month. Now, obviously we're at the end of January. I'm recording this on January 31st, literally the end of January. So I'm not going to do a book for January. Maybe at some point we'll, we'll do two books in a month if we're feeling adventurous. But I wanted to do a book a month And sure, maybe I'm not going to, you know, have a panel of people who are reading that book with me and discussing it, but I plan to announce what book I'm going to be reading that month at the beginning of the month. So for those of you listening, 
for February of 2022, I want to read The Tao of Fully Feeling by Pete Walker. Now I've started this book in the past. I have not finished the whole book. And so my goal is to start it over and read the whole book. And I would love if you do that with me, if you decide to do that with me, then you can message me. You can make comments through the Thanks for Sharing Facebook page, or you can comment on the Thanks for Sharing comment section where you're listening to your podcast. And so hopefully we can maybe get some discussion going or some thoughts that you have as you're reading the book, some realizations that you have, and we can kind of have a virtual, not live, but kind of a virtual discussion of books that we're reading this month and, or not this month, but this whole year. And at the end of the year, how great is that to be able to look at all of the books that we read and to have felt educated or inspired or to become more aware. So that's one of the things I'm going to be doing. Like I said, The Tao of Fully Feeling by Pete Walker. That's what I'm going to be reading for the month of February. And I invite you to read along with me. Now, one other thing I just want to talk about for a minute is, you know, a couple years ago, maybe four years ago, my youngest daughter would have been 14 at the time. And we decided as a family that it would be fun instead of doing Christmas gifts. I know we're a ways past the holiday, but I haven't really had a podcast episode since the holidays. Um, We decided as a family that it would be fun to travel, go on vacation together instead of doing gifts. You know, when your kids get to be teen years, they're not growing as much. They don't need really new clothes. They don't need new shoes because they maybe haven't grown much during the year. They don't need a lot of stuff. Once they have a phone, it's not like when I was growing up, right? Initially, I wanted records, right? Then I wanted like cassette tapes. Then I wanted the CD or DVDs, right? All of that has been streamlined once your kids get phones. And I was just finding myself like stretched on like, what should I get them that they need or want, right? But that doesn't just spending money. So we decided to travel. Now, probably we spend more money traveling than we would if we bought gifts, but it's been great. And so this past January, we actually went in January rather than December, we went to Mexico And it was actually, I've had a lot of people ask me, how was your vacation? And honestly, the answer is, it was perfect. Now, I've said to my husband, maybe it was perfect because there was 11 of us. I think we did a really good job. And five of the 11 were not our biological children. And so I think we did a good job with who came. You know, we had three boyfriends and we had a boyfriend's brother who came and Uh, To me, that's kind of remarkable. Like 11 days, no, not 11 days. We were gone 10 days, 10 days with 11 people. And there was not fighting. Nobody got their feelings hurt. Nobody was offended by anything, which let's be honest, it would be my kids fighting and my kids offending each other, my kids hurting each other's feelings. That didn't happen. And we had so much fun and... Great memories were made. My second daughter, daughter number two, her boyfriend was there. They got engaged one of the days that we were there. And so it looks like we're going to be having a wedding in September, which we're really excited about. Happy to welcome him to our family. They've been dating about four years. And we're just really happy 
to have, you know, to kind of experience that new stage of life. This will be our first kid getting married and becoming in-laws and hopefully down the road, not necessarily anytime soon, but down the road becoming grandparents and, and just seeing what this next stage of life has to offer us, which I have to say we're pretty excited about. So we were, like I said, we were on vacation for 10 days, which personally I think was the perfect amount of days. You know, we were talking uh, the day before we traveled back home. And at that point, we knew we had all tested negative, so there wasn't going to be issues getting back home. So that was a relief. And my husband and I were just kind of talking about how it worked with the rooms breaking out. That was perfect. How we had the perfect amount of relaxation time. We had the perfect amount of like excursions and adventure and fun times that way and you know we were looking at coming back home the next day and feeling like yeah okay I'm, I'm ready to go home it wasn't one of those vacations where it's coming to an end and you're just like no 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 please give me two more days I need three more days right we were like yeah this was great and now I have to say we were talking about we've been on a lot of vacations where that was not our experience I used to often say you know, when people would ask us, oh, are you going on vacation? I would say, no, it's a trip. Because when the kids were smaller and we would go someplace, it felt like a trip. It was work. It was not relaxing. I didn't feel rested when I came back. I felt like I had been working really hard instead of actually going on vacation. So I used to call it a trip when we took the kids. You know, I will say as our kids have gotten older, and we've added some people that come with us. Like I said, we had a perfect vacation. I wouldn't have changed one thing about it. And that's kind of rare, I think, to have. You know, I was the type of person when I was young, um, when I turned 16 years old, I said to my mom, and I could drive, I had a job. I told my mom, I said, I'm not going on another family vacation until you and dad are divorced. Now, at that point when I was 16, my mom wasn't planning to get divorced anytime soon. I don't even know if she was thinking of getting divorced. It hadn't been talked about, although they did not have a good marriage. When we went on family vacations, and we didn't go on a lot of family vacations, but it was miserable. And now I understand why, right? My dad was hiding addictions. He, was, he couldn't smoke in front of the family because did, we didn't know that he was a smoker. He couldn't drink which we didn't know he was a drinker, right? All of these things that he, all of these addictions that he did on a weekly, daily, regular basis could not happen when the family was on vacation. And so our family vacations were miserable to me. To me, they were miserable. And also we didn't have a lot of money. And so I had just said, I'm not going on another family vacation as long as you and dad are married. And I didn't. I didn't get off work. I could drive myself around. I had money. I could take care of myself. And I did not go on another family vacation until my parents had divorced. And even at that point, I think my dad had passed away before we did another family vacation with, you know, my siblings and their spouses and kids and all of that type of stuff. So for me, vacations have always kind of had this mixed energy. I felt like there was maybe some unfinished business around that. Now, I, I didn't always know this, right? Like, 
when I first got married, my husband and I would talk about going on vacation. And I just, I wasn't fully aware of what was happening, but I wouldn't plan it, right? Or we would talk about it and it just was a talk that we had and then it kind of never went anywhere. And it wasn't until I had kids who were playing competitive soccer and you had to travel for competitive soccer tournaments, which were kind of already arranged, that I started kind of digging into in my own therapy and looking about like, what is this panic that would come up for me when we were going to leave? And now when we did go, I mean, we had a fine time. It was fine. It's not like it was miserable like when I was growing up, but like the night before we left, the day before we left, I kind of just have this dread wash over me, kind of a panic. I did not want to go. I'd have to kind of push it out of my head that we were actually leaving. And it didn't match the experiences that I had when I left. And so I wasn't quite sure what was happening. Like I said, I was working with a therapist, started looking at what that was for me or why I felt that way and began to really kind of unpack what it felt like to be a kid and to go places as a family or to go on family vacations. What it just, just more of what it felt like to be a kid in my family growing up. And that's what I wanted to talk about today on this episode. You know, I have had a couple of people ask me, it's been a while since I started a new client, one who had never been to therapy or that was new to me. You know, my caseload is pretty full. I don't generally take a lot of new clients because if I'm full, right, I tend to work with clients for a pretty long period of time. You know, sometimes even five or six years I work with clients. And so it's not like I have a lot of availability. But I was talking with somebody that I knew who was going to be starting therapy, or actually I think they had started therapy at this conversation. And they were asking me, like, why, why is it in therapy that as therapists we believe it's important to talk about trauma? Like, if it's in the past, why do we need to dredge it up? Why does therapy get that reputation? Like, what is the purpose? They were asking me, like, if I'm going to go into therapy and start unpacking stuff, why should I do that? Like, I don't understand the purpose in doing that. One of my favorite stories I should add to answer that question comes from Dr. Carnes's book, Recovery Zone. And he talks about how developing skills for coping with loss and pain are essential for a healthy life. And he says these skills are even more important for the recovering person. And, you know, it's 2022. Who isn't in need of recovering from something? We've been through a lot in the past decade, but we've also been through a lot just in the past two going on three years that can feel like a decade. He says oftentimes the implicit brain, that section of our brain that directs behavior without our knowledge, makes decisions on the basis of pain. That pain is beyond the awareness of our explicit brain or our conscious brain. And he says this is particularly true for addicts and for codependents. So he says, from this we have the phenomenon that we call the hijacked brain. The hijacked brain plans to do one thing that's important, but it ends up doing something else. And we're not clear as to how that happened, how we started out going right and we ended up left in a ditch. So he tells this story to illustrate what he means. He says, a psychiatrist was treating a woman who had significant brain damage from an accident. 
She had no idea who she was or what her life had been like. The part of her brain that was damaged affected her memory. She also had no short-term memory, and so she could not remember the previous day. She was only aware of the present. Each morning, her doctor shook her hand and interviewed her, and each morning she seemed to have never met him before. As an experiment one morning, he put a tack in his hand, and when they shook hands, she was pricked by the tack. And then he interviewed her as before. Now the next morning, when the doctor extended his hand in greeting, she refused to shake hands. So part of her memory, or part of her brain, remembered the pain. He says this story illustrates the role of implicit memory, is that section of our brain that directs our behavior without our knowledge. So maybe, you know, it's been damaged by some traumatic brain injury, like in this story. Maybe it's in our conscious, maybe it's suppressed, maybe it's in our subconscious, and we kind of have weird dream flashes, but we're not sure how to interpret it, right? It's not in our conscious memory. He says, this story illustrates the role of implicit memory. In short, the woman altered her behavior, but did not remember why. Now, so often, this is part of that process of therapy where, you know, I often tell new therapists when I'm working with them and supervising them, you know, our clients come in with a story that they can live with. But often, part of what brings them into therapy is whether they're aware of this or not, they want to have a deeper understanding of who they are. And part of that is why they do what they do. Dr. Carnes continues, he says, so it is with all of us. Our implicit brain manages much of our life beyond our awareness. It is the automatic pilot where we no longer think about how to tie our shoes, drive a car, or even when to breathe. This part of us also operates on the basis of life experience. Hurts are incorporated into decision-making, often without any examination or reflection. The reason we end up in the same situation over and over again without intending to is because of this embedded decision-making process. Our brains became hijacked. We systematically need to review our lives so that we may examine the sources of our sorrow or trauma or our life experiences. He says we resist this when we ask, why do we need to dredge up the past? Well, the answer lies in our inexplicable behavior that we will continue until we address the pain. We must overcome our resistance because our pain can be a great ally in providing resilience, wisdom, compassion, empathy, or unexamined pain that is not grieved and not integrated into our explicit selves adds to the probability that our brain is being hijacked and will continue to be hijacked. Sometimes when I talk with clients, we talk about unfinished business. Sometimes when we're running groups, you know, kind of when we're going to be transitioning from this topic to another topic, I might ask like, what is the unfinished business of this group? What have we not addressed? Or what have members of the group not spoken that needs to be spoken about this particular topic? Sometimes with clients, you know, we may get started and we may work together for a while and we may work together on some really good things and see some relief or some improvement in what first brought them into therapy. And then again, I ask, what's in the unfinished business? Where have we not gone that we need to go 
And again, clients may have some unawareness about that. You know, sometimes we call it denial. Sometimes it's more just of a, a lack of awareness. But it's the unfinished business that we still carry with us, that we still hold, that we have to start unpacking and examining. Okay, I apologize about that. I had to take a break. One of my dogs was vomiting, the other one running too excitedly to see what was happening. I had to hit pause. One thing led to another. It's like two hours later and I'm picking up where I left off, except I don't exactly remember where I left off. So there may be kind of an abrupt gap between where I had to hit pause and where I'm getting back to now. And I'm just gonna own that. I'm just gonna be honest about it. I'm not gonna try to fix it or pretend that that didn't happen. I'm just gonna pick up where I think that maybe perhaps I left off and hopefully I had finished my sentence and didn't just hit pause mid-sentence. But if I did, I apologize. So I was talking about implicit memory or uh, unconscious memory versus explicit memory or those things we are aware of. And I think I was saying something along the lines of, you know, what I tell a lot of new therapists is that clients maybe come in with the story that they're aware of and they've made sense of it in their own way. But because of, you know, psychological human natures, we also will live with a story that's comfortable to us, even if it's not an accurate story. And we tend to avoid pain and we don't want to look at things that we may see as a failure. And so for that reason, there's a lot of clients who come to therapy knowing a piece of their story, but not understanding fully uh, the nature of their story or the impact of their story. And I, I count myself among those who, you know, when I first started therapy, I had an idea of my story, but I feel like, you know, all these years later, I'm, you know, 51 going on 52. I'm still understanding some of the depth and some of the breadth that my story has had and the impact that it's taken on me and how that can show up um, from time to time or in certain relationships. So often I will talk with clients about the fact that most of us are going to arrive at adulthood with what I call unfinished business. If we experience any type of childhood trauma, I think often we then will arrive at adulthood with unfinished business. But I also think, you know, the nature of childhood is such that, you know, we're, we're impressionable, we're young, our brain is developing, we're learning, but we're also in the process of learning how to learn and we're thinking while we're learning how to think and what to think and all sorts of things go into those experiences that we have in the first, you know, 18 to 21 years of our life when then we are considered to have arrived in the adult years. And again, I said before, those are young adult years, having kids in that age range. I, you know, can see how young that is, even though it's still the adult years. And I think, you know, often for me, you know, if I'm talking with clients and they're asking me about unfinished business or like, what do you mean when you say unfinished business? I think a lot of times the unfinished business, if I were to boil it down to what is the unfinished business? 
I would say it is maybe a not knowing. Let me let me find this. I'm thinking off the top of my head because I didn't write this part down. I would say it's not fully knowing and understanding our personal power and what we are called to do with that personal power. I think that's the unfinished business. And I think we can spend, you know, a lot of time either avoiding our personal power or numbing out from our power, being afraid of our power, misusing our power, abusing our power, um, all sorts of things we can arrive in adulthood with kind of an unsurety of how to connect with and use the power that each one of us has individually. I think that's the other thing is it's not just that one person has this personal power. I think each of us has that personal power and the unfinished business is that our formative years did not adequately prepare us to know how to really kind of harness, to connect with and harness that power in the way that is right for us. Now, I think in those formative years, a lot of times people told us how to connect with that power or how to harness the power. What's the best way to do that? What you're supposed to do? I got those messages about who I was. Some of those I thought were helpful. Others I kind of knew were not helpful even when I got them. But I also don't think that we can really know and connect with our personal power based on what somebody else has given us, what somebody else has taught us, or what somebody else has handed to us. I just don't think it works that way. I, I think we have to go on a quest. I think we have to have some type of journey that puts us asking about, getting glimpses of, connecting with our power, and moving that through to where we can then fully embrace our power and know what to do with it and what our calling is with our power. You know, I was working with a client, worked with him. Oh, we're almost coming up on three years, I think we decided the other day. And, you know, he definitely had lost a sense of power. And, you know, had, I mean, I worked with addiction, had addiction in his life, had childhood trauma, which is usually the origin of addiction. That was the case for him. And was just kind of like, moving through life with what people told him, what came his way, not necessarily what he wanted or what he felt like was best for him, but just kind of like what came or what other people kind of pushed him into doing, he kind of went that direction. And it wasn't working, which is why he reached out and wanted to start therapy. And as we started down that path and going on that journey, you know, eventually he started to get sober. And initially he would get sober for time periods and then he would use again and then he'd try to decrease his use. And initially a lot of our work together kind of focused on the chaos that was coming because of his addictive behaviors, which is a way of maybe making the unfinished business fuzzy or unclear or like we don't even know that that's there for us. As he started to work on sobriety and find the reasons personally, that he wanted to become sober from all substances and behaviors that were unhealthy for him. You know, we were talking, this was maybe a month or so ago before the holidays, and he, he was telling me, like, so many things have started to line up 
with my sobriety date. And we were talking about this and, and I was talking to him about his unfinished business. You know, he and I have worked on his trauma egg and he's gone through his trauma egg with me and the experiences that are on there, the messages he received about his life, about his purpose in life. And we were able to kind of line that up with different events in his life and choices that he's made or not really made, but made under this implicit memory where the pain that he experienced was creating behavioral changes or making choices in his life, but they were rooted in this pain that he had experienced in his childhood. And, you know, we were talking about kind of finishing this business of the unresolved childhood trauma and how as he has started to connect with this sense of power, you know, I see him in the men's group I, I'm part of and I was saying like, it's different. Like you're talking different. What you share is different. There's not a nervousness that used to be there when you would talk or speak up or share something in the men's group. It, it sounds different. The way that you're showing up is different in these sessions. What we're talking about and what you're working on is different. It's deeper. And I said, you're, you're connecting with this sense of power that had been lost to you. You didn't know even that you had lost it. And now you're, you're moving into your space and you're claiming your space. And you're doing that with some confidence that comes internally, not kind of an external, uh, maybe bravado kind of thing, but you're, you're moving into your space and you're claiming it because it's your space and because only you can claim that space. And I feel like oftentimes, you know, that sense of power or finishing that unfinished business, I think a lot of that isn't necessarily, it's not a thought, it's a feeling. And it happens, we're feeling that it's a sense that we have as we're moving into that. It's a feeling that we have as we're moving into that. I was talking with another client just recently. I've worked with him and his wife for years. They were talking um, today just about the length of time that I've known them and, and worked with them, you know, not continuously, but off and on over, I think it was a period of maybe eight years. Eight, I think was what we had decided. And, you know, his wife was asking him some questions in this particular session. And, and before he started to answer, I don't know what his answer was going to be. I felt maybe a sense of defensiveness, but sometimes it, it can feel that way and he's actually not defensive. But I did ask him if I could pause for a minute and I said, can I actually back up your wife's question and ask another question that I think precedes that, right? And I just said to him, like, where does this story start? Like his wife was kind of talking about this pattern in their relationship, but I said, where does that start? Where does it start where you're not really a part of things, you're not necessarily belonging and after everybody else who fits in and who belongs is over and done with the fun, you have to do the crappy job or you have to stick around, you have to be responsible or you have to clean up or you have to like, where does that story start, right? Because I'm guessing it doesn't start in your marriage. I, I know them well enough that I knew I was right there. And, you know, and he got contemplative for a minute and reflective and was like, no, yeah, that this is where that story starts for me, right? And he was talking about this need he has to belong and a need he has to be part of something relationally and a need to be seen. But that there's, you know, that he also has ways of coping that allows him to avoid that. 
And again, that's what I'm talking about. It's avoiding that pain of not belonging or not being part of or not fitting in, right? That's some of the unfinished business that he arrived in adulthood with. And you know, what he didn't realize, and I say this often to clients, what you don't realize is your worst fear, most often you've already survived. That worst fear, the reason I find so often with clients, the reason it's the worst fear isn't because you're afraid of it happening, but because it's haunting you from your past. It's already happened. It's haunting you and you're not sure how to face it and make sense of it. And, you know, so I encouraged him. I've done this with other clients just saying like you have to allow your little boy or your little girl's heart to break so that your functional adult self can step in and learn what to do. What do I do when my little girl's heart breaks? That's been a question I've had a lot of times when I'm in therapy and I'm working on stuff and my present self, my current age self has to be able to figure out what do I do with her? How do I go back into that space where she's broken, her heart's broken, she's scared, whatever that looks like, how do I now go back and have that conversation with her? How do I go back with wisdom from my current age or my present self and go back into that space? Not that it's not going to happen, right? All of those things have already happened. But how do I go back to her in a way that can be healing for both of us and that finishes what she couldn't finish and what as an adult, I didn't realize I needed to finish. I think so often interpersonal relationships are the zone of great creation and where our real spiritual work begins. And it's not easy. John Wellwood says, every human being with whom we seek relatedness is a Cohen. That is to say, an impossibility. There is no formula for getting along with a human being. No technique will achieve relatedness. I am impossible to get along with, so is each one of you. All of your friends are impossible. The members of our families are impossible. How then shall we get along with them? If you are seeking a real encounter, then you must confront the Cohen, the impossibility represented by the other person. The Cohen is an invitation to enter into reality. I think when we start to look at what messages we arrived in our adult years with that are haunting us from our past, that we have unfinished business around and we get intentional about the questions that we need to explore. One of the things that I love that I heard Mark Nepo say on a podcast I was listening to a month ago was that questions don't need to be answered. Questions need to be entered. When I heard him say that, like, oh, the truth of that just washed over me. I had been feeling that I want to say for years. I had been feeling for years that questions gave me more life 
and more aliveness than answers ever did. And I just loved the way that he put that. Questions are not to be answered. Questions are to be entered. Questions like, how am I resisting my experience of life? And what am I really resisting? Questions like, can I welcome the uncertainty of what is to come? Because there will always be some uncertainty, some things that we were not expecting or planning for. And can I pivot? Can I let go of my well-thought-out plan for what was uncertain and what was unexpected? Which also can bring me to letting go of my attachment to safety and security. Sometimes we have to let go of safety and security in order to have this moment where maybe there is some adventure, maybe there's some risk or a sense of danger and we enter it anyway in order to have this experience in this moment. I was listening to a podcast, oh, a while ago with Richard Rohr. I've talked about Richard Rohr on my podcast before and he was talking about faith, which I think for me as I've you know had kind of my own journey with faith has come to mean a lot more to me than, again, than the definition that I was given, which is the religion I was born into and given as a young girl. And he was talking about faith and he said, you know, the opposite of faith is not doubt, which I heard so much that me asking questions or me having a doubt or even just a question was doubt. Right. And I got that message that somehow me doubting or me having a question and not being satisfied with the answer I was given was me not having enough faith. And that's not maybe how it felt to me, but that's what I was told. So he was saying the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is control. And there have been times in my life where I have wanted to control things. There have been times just last month, right? One night I couldn't fall asleep, which is kind of rare for me. You know, I'm a pretty good sleeper. When I go to sleep, I sleep. But as I've gotten older, sometimes that doesn't happen. And, you know, my husband woke up at like three o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom and was like, what are you doing awake, right? And I said, oh, just, you know, sitting here thinking about all the things that I have no control over, right? And he said, are you changing the world, fixing the world? And I said, nope, just, you know, worrying about all the things I have zero control over. So again, I there are times where a sense of control feels like it is what I want or it's what I need. I don't think it's really what I need. It may be what I want. But if I can let go of that need or my attachment to security and safety, what feels safe to me, oftentimes I have experiences that I never could have planned for or never even could have asked for because I didn't really know that that's what I was needing or that's what I wanted. And so I think sometimes we have to look at like, how do we get in our own way? How are even good things like safety and security, which I have done a lot of therapy work myself to get to a place where I have a sense of safety and security that personally I can create for myself and develop myself. But maybe too much of that also then gets in, a, in the way and is a barrier to me having the other experiences and the other moments that I need in my life. I find that often for me, when I work on one area, 
let's say, for example, safety and security. Once I kind of feel like I'm getting to where I need to be with that and I can create that for myself and I can connect to that for myself, I find that life then says, hey, now can you be at peace with insecurity? Can you be at peace with uncertainty? Can you be at peace when you don't know what's next? And I don't like that process, but what I found as I've maybe surrendered to that process or allowed that process, I say allowed like I had some control over it. So probably allowed is not the right word, but as I became part of what unfolded, that I found maybe some balance and again, a paradox, which is if one thing is true, the opposite tends to also be true and that I can't get too attached to one thing because I also need to be able to see the other side of that or the opposite of that and to also see the beauty in that. So now going back to where I started with this family vacation that we went on, I remember it was many years ago, probably 10 years ago, we were going to a soccer tournament. And where I live in Utah, most of the winter months, you know, anywhere from November, yeah, soccer, we usually play soccer through October. And then November through February, March, um, we typically would be traveling to go to tournaments. And a lot of the tournaments that we went to, I mean, my one daughter who played college soccer, we went to a lot of tournaments in a lot of different states. But it is not uncommon for us to be traveling to Vegas for soccer tournaments. And so this particular trip, we were, you know, going to Vegas. Typically, so many families on the team have to book reservations at a certain casino that we're assigned as a team, which I, you know, don't necessarily enjoy. And that was the case with this one tournament. And so, you know, we got there. I found as we were there, I just was irritable. I hadn't been on the drive there, but I was irritable. I was kind of getting snappy. We got to our room. We kind of got unpacked. You know, my daughter was like, hey, these people are at the pool. Can we go get ready to get to the pool? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But I'm just feeling inside like tension and like an argument is brewing. What I didn't realize at the time, right, is that argument was brewing inside of me, not necessarily with anybody else, but that was what was happening internally for me. And I kind of was like, okay, you guys all go, I'll come meet you. And just kind of had a moment to kind of reflect. Again, I'm kind of looking at like what comes up for me around vacations. I, you know, avoid them. I had that anxiety, a lot of anxiety the day or two before we actually had to leave. And, you know, a lot of my family vacations, if we were going out of state, most of the ones that I can remember took us through Vegas. We didn't stay at casinos. You know, we had a tent trailer, but we would, you know, eat in casinos and we would be in the casinos. And I was just noticing that time as we walked through the casino to get to our rooms and check in and do all of that, like that is really when the tension and the irritability and the frustration really started for me. And I kind of had to sit with that for a moment. And I, you know, started to reflect how many family vacations 
were around casinos or at least part of our vacation involved casinos. Now, what I didn't know when I was on those vacations as a kid was that my dad had a gambling addiction. I didn't know that. I know that now, but I didn't know that then. And I can imagine now the tension. Like I do have a memory once of we were going to Disneyland and we spent, you know, two days in Vegas. I don't know why. Even at the time I was 15, I think. There's not much for me to do in Vegas, not back in 1985. And, you know, we parked the tent trailer. It was July. Let me tell you, do you know how hot Vegas is in July? It is so hot. When you're in a tent trailer, we weren't even like at a KOA campground with a pool. I have no idea where we were, but it was so hot and so miserable. And my dad went to go get some groceries, which was a common excuse. And he had been gone for hours. And I remember saying to my mom, where is dad? Like, cause he had the car, right? We couldn't go anywhere. We're dying of heat. Not literally, but we're so hot, so miserable. Where is dad? And she's like, he's getting milk. Why do we need milk right now? We don't need milk right now, right? Well, now I've kind of put together, oh, dad was actually gambling in the casinos while we were sitting in this horrible temperature in a tent trailer, sweating and being miserable and just waiting for him to come back, right? And I could put together the smells of casinos. They smell similar. The sounds of casinos. Casinos have a certain sound. All of those triggers when I'm now an adult and I'm with my family going on this soccer trip, all of these triggers are creating a flashback for me. They're creating this memory of this unfinished business that I had arrived at my adult years with and I hadn't realized that. So I kind of figured that out, got ready, went down to the pool, kind of found my family, right? Kids are playing in the pool. I say to my husband, like, I think, I said, hey, I'm sorry, I just got really snappy. He's like, yep, you did. I'm like, I think all of the sounds, the smells, the, all of this is triggering childhood memories for me. And he knew that I had stopped going on vacation with my family when I turned 16. And, and I said, I, I think that has a lot to do with my avoidance of family vacations, of the anxiety, the extreme anxiety that I have before we actually leave, of me not wanting to do it, of me wanting to pull out, cancel the whole thing. I, th I think that's what's going on for me, right? And I need to finish that. Now, again, it wasn't just up to me to finish that. I had four kids, right? Who kids do what kids do. They fight. I don't really recall me and my siblings fighting on family vacations, but I also think that was because my parents tended to fight for unknown reasons at unknown times. It was unpredictably predictable that my parents were going to fight and have tension on vacations, which also meant that for us as kids, we really couldn't add our own tension or our own irritability to that mix because that would just you know spark the whole fight. And so what I have started to realize is my kids are being kids. I maybe wasn't allowed to be a kid on vacations and fight with my siblings, but my kids are able to do that. Fortunately, this time that didn't happen and it was wonderful. And I honestly could say it was perfect. 
my husband was like, really? Perfect? I'm like, yeah, perfect. Like I would not have changed one thing. Like that is perfect to me. And again, I'm not saying I've conquered, you know, this whole childhood trauma. The next vacation we may go on, it might be a disaster, right? There might be a lot of hurt feelings. I hope not. I don't know, right? Because it's not all up to me to control. But what I do know is as I kind of let go of my own stories from the past, as I have been facing the unfinished business around this particular event for me, as I've stepped into some of the more interpersonal relationships in my life and created this relationship where I can be vulnerable, the other person can be vulnerable, there can be connection, we get to see each other, not just each other's strengths, but we get to see each other's struggle and fear and growth and development and really have this spiritual work happening between us. As I've been able to do that, as I've been able to go back to my little girl and let her heart break, right? She couldn't let her heart break then because she was keeping it all together. And she doesn't need to do that now because I'm here, right? My adult self, my functional adult self, I made it. I survived. And I'm working now through what she really just had to survive. And I don't have to survive anymore. And I think that's the beauty of doing trauma work, of unpacking the story, of understanding how our behavior changes or is dictated by pain or organizes itself around the pain so that we don't have to experience it or see it or feel it. And when we can understand that and start to face that, I find more often than not with my clients, the worst has already happened. And now we just have to feel it name it, acknowledge what it was in a way that allows us to connect to our own personal power that we have now and to start growing that into something meaningful and in something purposeful. And I think that is the beauty in trauma work. And that is my very long answer to why do we unpack trauma? Why is it necessary to talk about it? Why do we have to go back into the past in order to figure out the present and live it in a way that honors us and honors our experiences. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.